Hey everyone, this is Kim Bean and you are listening to All Things Wolf and Wild. Wow, y'all, I have to say this was truly one of my favorite interviews. I mean, have you ever listened to someone's story and found yourself so completely humbled and yet so incredibly inspired to do great things? Yeah, well, that's me right now. And the story is Suzanne Stone's 30-plus years of working for the survival of wolves. I mean, Suzanne's drive, tenacity, and determination are the reason why we have wolves in Idaho today. Seriously, she is truly awe-inspiring to me. She has spent the majority of her career working for the coexistence between ranchers and wolves and has proven time and time again that non-lethal measures work better than killing wolves and that coexistence can happen. Again, it goes back to that drive, tenacity, and determination, and will, and want, and passion, and love for these animals and wildlife and wild plant, you know, wild lands. So it makes complete and utter sense that tomorrow, January 23rd, she's launching a whole new project. And it's called the International Wildlife Coexistence Network. And you are invited to join this remarkable undertaking. So, as I always say, grab your favorite beverage, turn up the volume, and hang out with me and Suzanne for a bit. Suzanne, thank you so much for being here with me today. It has been, um, I know I asked you like a year ago, and I never followed back up, so that was 100% on my uh, my part, a bad thing, but I'm really glad you're with me tonight. Um, yeah, you waited for a much better year. I d- <laughs> well, that's no kidding. The COVID, the COVID year was not... Um, was not pleasant at all, and I think at the time that I asked you to do it, I ended up getting sick about a week later. So everything kind of went out the window at that. But I'm thankful that you're um, that you're willing and, and able to sit with me today and uh, on a great changing um, week, so to speak, in that aspect. But it's historic. Yes, we're all like experiencing hope again. It's it's an an old friend that's welcome back, but it it's been quite a stranger for the last four years. It has. I, I, I didn't realize, I, I think I realized how pent up I was, you know, and how anxious and, and how much angst was there. But um, I think today was that day where I I exhaled for the first time and I thought, <laughs> yes. no, no more. I, I'm, I'm not doing this. There will be no more anger, no more hatred. I'm not going to accept any of that. So I'm really yeah. hopeful and happy for the future. But more importantly, I'm, in hap- I'm, I'm happy that you're here with me and we can talk about the work you have done for wolves for over 30 years. I don't want to date you, but that's a pretty... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. But that's a, pretty, that's a pretty sweet time frame that you've literally... I mean, you spent... It's been a wolf kind of gig. You've, you've really spent over 30 yeah. years about wolves. And, um, you know... You, I know you started um, as an intern, and then you went on to become a member of the, the Wolf Reintroduction Team, um, the USA, what is it, Canadian Wolf Reintroduction Team that, that actually restored wolves to Yellowstone in central Idaho. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, yeah. that's like the ultimate gig. 
you you know you were part of what is one of the greatest re- rewilding events in history. Um, I mean, what what did it take to get that job? Was it a federal position that you got, or or how did that how did no. that come about? <laughs> you know, no, actually, um, it was uh, it was a phone call from Ed Bangs, who was the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wolf coordinator at the time, and this is in regard just to the Yellowstone Idaho wolf reintroduction. Um, the the second year of the reintroduction, uh, some of the Republicans in Congress stripped all the funding, all the appropriations funding for the reintroduction for that year. And Ed called me and he said, you know, we're hosed. We can't go for it. For it. Yeah, we're not going to be able to do the second year. We're not going to be able to bring more wolves in. We don't have enough to secure the recovery. And I think he was just calling to lament what was going on. But you know, I saw it as a challenge. I thought, okay, well, fine. There are so many wolf supporters out there. Why can't we just replace the money with private money? And I asked him, I said, can we do this? You know, if we raise the money and pay for it privately, can you still go forward? And and he was really quiet. And then he said, well, yeah, if you can raise the money, but we've got basically eight weeks to do it. Oh my God. And uh, well, okay, let's go for it. So I went to my board uh, at the time was the Wolf uh, Education and Research Center board. And they didn't really want to share any of our current memberships uh, because we were raising our own money. You know, of course, the organization tries to cover its base, but they ended up letting me have a, a, an expired list that had about 2000 people on it. And those people had not given or responded in a very long time. So I sent them a, a one-page letter, front and back. That was all I was allowed, and just said, "This is it. We can either do this, you know, with this group of people. You can make this happen, or it's not going to happen." And I, you know, told them that they could be part of making history. And off that letter went. And about four or five days later, I went to the post office, and there was a few checks in the mail. And I, Thought, oh, that's great. That's you know, there's some encouragement. People are responding. A day later, I went back in, and the postmaster said, "You know, there's this, this big yellow sticker on my box that said, come to the front desk.'" And I went up there with it, and and they're like, "What did you do?" And I'm like, "What do you mean? What did I do?" And they they brought me out a huge box full of letters, and and it wasn't the only one. And once they did open the PO box, I mean, letters just poured out, literally poured out onto the floor. And within just a matter of about 10 days, we, I raised, it was like close to over $75,000. In how many days? Um, and it came in just about 10 days. Oh yeah. It was incredible. God, that's amazing. Incredible response. And uh, I think ultimately it was over a hundred thousand, but it was definitely enough to cover like the helicopters and transportation and and just get the you know the basics covered. So um, I got to call and <laughs> about a, you know a few weeks later after the first phone call and say you won't believe this, but I I think we're going to make it work. Um, and you know it was everything from I remember one young girl she'd gone out collecting pop bottles with her grandmother. And she sent us five dollars and eighty-two cents that they oh, had collected sweet. over the weekend. Um, and then um, there was a machine shop out of New York that sent us ten thousand dollars. You know, it was just wonderful stuff coming in. But 
you know, all together, it, it added up quickly and we were able to replace all of the funds that had been set aside um, that year for the Wolfer introduction. So I, I had, a, it was like a dream come true. I had a American express with about a hundred thousand dollars backing it <laughs> and jumped on the airplane, went to, you know, Fort St. James and Fort St. John, and then um, met, our crew up there, lots of volunteers. We had a ton of volunteers that year, so because nobody was getting paid for it, they were all just volunteering for the the chance to to do something really good. And like our the guy that ran our lab was um, funny enough, his name was Doug Smith, not the Doug Smith, but this was uh, um, the other Doug. Smith. He was uh, the other Doug Smith. He was <laughs> he was one of the top kidney specialists in the entire world. He's from Yale University. And he came in to run our lab work, you know, something that an intern for college would be doing. But, you know, he wanted to be part of it. And he just did a brilliant job. Um, we had veterinarians that, that um, you know, donated their time. Local school kids came out, helped out uh, on site. Um, the British um, Columbia, you know, BC was really great about helping us with, like, field support. We got to our field station and it was um, it was 30 below zero. It never got over 30 below the entire time we were there. So we had other obstacles as well. But you know the funding came from the American people, and and in a remarkably short time period, it was amazing just how quickly they responded. But yeah, it was you know if we needed something, I was able to say yes. You know we can pay for the helicopters. Yes, we can. <laughs> We can pay for the the equipment. Yes, we'll pay for the medical supplies. And just, you know, it was it was incredible to see that happen. So whatever you put in this letter, and I'd be curious to me, that's a letter that should be framed, because that's it, whatever was worded and however it was worded, whatever you did, it sparked not only just a curiosity in people, but something they knew something amazing was it going to happen or d- did you feel that did you feel that this was literally as amazing and as um I, I i don't know to me i think it's arguably one of the greatest uh um, environmental happenings um in our lifetime or um in history but do you do, do you think people really understood what was about to take place and where their money went to 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 make this happen you know, we had we had the first year of the of the Yellowstone Idaho Wolf reintroduction um, as an example of what could happen, right? So people were already excited about the return of wolves. They'd already seen wolves on the on the television and the news, and they knew that it was you know it was happening. Our, the letter was um, important to help them understand that. The few wolves that had been brought in in 1995 were not enough to secure the wolf population. That it was um, really risky um, to leave just that few number of wolves out there, and that we really needed to have that second, um, um, you know, group of wolves come in. That was much larger group um, to help ensure that that population would be healthy and functional, and that it would continue on. Um, so I think that was, you know, I just told them the truth in the letter that it's, if we can't do this, we're really risking going back to zero or, you know, seeing the population dwindle to the point where it can't be sustained right. because there aren't enough of them out there. Honesty is an amazing thing, isn't it? Um, truth. Oh, boy. Yeah. Is, is an amazing thing. <laughs> yeah. For sure. So 
when you were in Canada, I mean, you just didn't do this amazing job by bringing the money. I mean, <clears throat> I see many, many photos of you out there handling these wolves. So, yeah. I mean, you did a lot that while you the were there. Part. Yeah, that's the candy, right? That's that's it. <laughs> yeah, that was the best part. Do you remember the first wolf, and do you know where that wolf went? Any ideas? I do. That wolf actually had um, a fairly sad story. So the oh. first wolf that came in, yeah, um, was a, just a beautiful wolf, great, big gray, um, very much alpha male, and had the most piercing green eyes. He was just stunning you know just one of those wolves that just takes your breath away and he was caught early on um and then we had to catch an, uh, enough wolves to be able to um you know fill the sherpa and and send an entire um you know cr- uh, group of wolves down um whether they were going to yellowstone or, or going to idaho but uh, we, we had to fill the plane and so he was there longer than the other ones. And then I got to kind of watch him for a while. And I bet he was there three or four days before we caught the next wolves. Um, he didn't act like any of them. He, um, when you came close to the cage, um, he would get a low growl, um, just a warning. And he doesn't like, didn't like having you know people come by. And he would just stand there the whole day at the front door of the cage um and like he was staring like willing his himself through it mm-hmm. uh, through the door and you could tell he just could tell that he did not want to be there that he had a, a definitely another place to be uh, and i just i just you know felt like we've separated this wolf from his mate his pack and he does not want to be here um so when it came time to do the shipment for that wolf, because everyone knew, I mean, he he was so clearly unhappy about going um, that three of us, in fact, independently, I didn't know that the other two had done this, but went to the reintroduction team leaders and just said, we, we need to let this wolf go. Um, and unfortunately, he's so beautiful and so perfect that they were like, you're crazy. (laughs) We don't need to let him go. We, you know, he needs to come with us. We can't take him back. Um, And uh, on his journey down to the States, um, he was the wolf that um, nipped the thumb on uh, one of the biologists when he landed Mm -hmm. in Montana. And even with the big signs that, you know, we had signs all over the cage that said, you know, don't, don't approach this wolf. We knew he was, he was really seriously upset about leaving. Um, so anyway, they ended up euthanizing him. And he's the only one that we lost um, oh, that no. year. But yeah, he was just an incredible wolf. But, you know, it's just, um, you know, it, it was a sacrifice for those wolves. You know, they, it's no fun to have alien abduction on your menu, right? You know, because <laughs> they went, what they went through was yeah. was tough, and of course, where they landed, where they, you know, where they came, it was better protection for them, for one thing, because they they were being killed in the areas that we brought them out of, um, trapped and shot and all that, poisoned, and uh, and of course, the elk and deer that were here were clueless as to what wolves were. They'd gone for generations without seeing a wolf on the landscape, or at least certainly not many. So it was 
it was a, a field day. You know, those wolves had so much available prey for them. It was kind of a, a perfect habitat for them. So when you, especially early on, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, you know from from the stories from from uh, you know everybody um, that I that I've um, spoken with. You know, it was almost like the the, the elk seriously didn't know what was happening, and they were just standing there. No. You know, it's like oh, and that was the end. But when was there anything specific? I mean, that to me is just a that's a heartbreaking story. So. Thanks for sharing that with me. That was sad. But was there anything significant that you took from that trip, from being in Canada alone, that you felt was worth, I mean, without knowing the future, I guess, but at the time, did you understand that sacrifice, or was this the only wolf that just was like, no, this isn't worth it. He needs to go back. Well, the other ones were, like you said, acted differently. Yeah, the, all the other ones were different. Um, they, they, um, you know, they were nervous, of course, of being around people, but I've experienced that the year before. So the second year of the year I was in Canada, I was on the ground in Idaho during the first year of the reintroduction. And that's when we had, you know, vigilante groups threatening to kill everyone engaged with the mm-hmm. um, wolf reintroduction teams. We had high security issues. We had to keep the wolves under uh, armed guard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was... It was a really rough time. Um, we were up in Salmon, Idaho, with the first four wolves that came in. And then during the midst of all the things that were going on, we had a uh, the um, Farm Bureau issued a court order. Uh, we were able to get a court order to, to, to stay the reintroduction. So the Yellowstone wolves made it to Yellowstone. Um, but the Idaho wolves were stuck in this warehouse in a very hostile community. And we were the only ones that were on the ground there with them, just a handful of us. And it was it was pretty tough. I mean, we didn't know if we were gonna if the wolves were gonna end up getting killed because of, you know, whatever the judge's order was going to be, if we were gonna face you know, the town rising up and you know, it was it was really um very tense time. Did you but you were sitting behind no, please go ahead. No, it's okay. One of the, the best things that happened during that time is that I got to spend more time with those wolves um, before the re- release. And they were in their cages for about 24 hours, longer than we had planned to. So we were having to provide water and stuff for them. And uh, it was my first experience with a wild wolf. Um, his name was Chat Chat, which means older brother in Nez Perce. Uh, we had sent this wolf collars out to the schools to have the schools decorate the collars and most of them named their wolves so this one came from the Nespers tribe um, and he was just this beautiful incredibly beautiful male but we um when I was approaching up to his cage it was the first time I'd ever locked eyes with a, a wild wolf mm-hmm. from a very close distance like that and it was just it took my breath away you know that um that there was so much raw intelligence and power and just like so much presence of, of, um, just this otherworldliness almost of like how this wolf was so sure of his place in the world. And, and there was, you know, it was like being, in the presence of something 
so different than anything I've ever encountered before. And when he looked at me, it was like he was looking through me. You know, just I just remember, you know, it almost staggered me. It, it was such a strong um, feeling. That, uh, response was just not expected at all. And he he never made a move to do anything aggressive. He was curious, you know. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was quite the experience. And you know, I'd always loved wolves, but I. I had never expected that kind of raw, just such a strong intelligence and um, such surety of, of their place in the world. Um, and that came through so quickly. And so, you know. It cements it. Anyway. Uh, it cements it on you, though. I mean, for me, that was, you know, you're going through your story, and I'm thinking about um, the first time that I encountered a wolf, you know, in, in, in the wild. Obviously, it was in Yellowstone for me. And it is, it's, but there was one before that, but, but as far as a wild wolf, and to me, it was the, uh, it made me feel, hmm, it still chokes me up thinking about it because it is such a surreal oh. moment, but it does, it, it mm-hmm. almost makes you look within yourself and, yes. and almost a mirror of, of the humanity that you, I, it was, it was difficult and it was amazing and it was it made me yearn for more of what that wolf was. It sounds so strange, but maybe trying to instill within me or say something to me or whatever it was. Um, It stuck with me and it will never leave. And it is my drive. You know, that's so you put it much more eloquently, but I, um, I, I, I get that. And I try to explain that to people when they say, well, it's just a wild dog. And I'm like, no. No. <laughs> no. No. no, no, it's not. And until you have an animal, have this animal, have a wolf, a wild wolf, look you in the eye. You, I just, I think there's just, it's a getting to know you and it's an amazing, um, heartbreaking in some cases feeling. And so yeah. I, 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 you know, I, I wish I was, um, I understand chat chat. I get that. So, yeah, you know that's that's hard. Yeah. He was uh, he was amazing too because he ended up um, being one of the oldest surviving wolves in Idaho. He ended up living 13 years in the wild, which oh my is God. really old, right? Yeah, for yeah. a wild wolf, and uh, he fathered so many generations of pups. And um, he ended up with a best friend within Wildlife Services, <laughs> a guy by the name of Rick Williamson, uh-huh. who was. Um, uh, the control wolf control specialist for yeah. wildlife services here in the state. Uh, but he Rick completely fell under chat chat spell and he, uh, that wolf lived a very charmed life because I know Rick went several times when there was a kill order out on the pack that, that uh, chat chat was involved in or was part of and that that wolf was given a pass many, many, many times <laughs> And, uh, and he just absolutely loved that wolf. And what, he what told me about was, one time. What pack was uh, Chat Chat in? Or can you say? Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it. it. I, You know, these are human names that we give these animals. Exactly. And they're, I agree. And they're, I agree. Um, so, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 he was up in the Salmon Chalice uh, National Forest. Oh, gotcha. uh, um, and so anyway, he... Um, 
he told me about one time when he went out for um, to investigate some cows being um, reportedly killed by wolves and he came up on the meadow and he saw Chat Chat walking through the field. At this point, Chat Chat's an old man. He's probably like 11 or 12 years old, has cataracts, is completely blind, and the hacker's taking care of him. I mean, it's grandpa, right? And so they would bring him food. And I think they even let him think he was the alpha male. And I think he probably was the alpha male for most of his life. Um, he was a pretty amazing wolf, but they, and they would definitely bring him food and rip came over in the helicopter and saw Chat Chat out in this big meadow. Chat Chat had a big um, cow leg in his mouth and was trotting with his tail up across the meadow, very proud of himself. Um, and Rick was like, and the pilot's like going, did you see that? And he goes, no, I didn't see that. I honestly didn't see that. Just keep going. Um, so, you know, they, um, they have, they have a pretty amazing effect. I think you're right about that. It's a mirror that it's like, it's mirroring back to you something that is important within yourself, um, uh, that it is the better nature of, of humanity. Um, or sometimes maybe, you know, what's mirrored back isn't your better nature, but your, your demons. But um, it seems like either way, wolves are going to have an impact on someone that's never a neutral one. Yeah, I, I think that... Um... For me, when I talk to, you know, we have um, friends that uh, um, have the uh, um, wolves for PTSD and working with, um, you know, veterans with PTSD. And these guys have been through some pretty whew, rough stuff. Um, and it's, everything's tried to bring them back. And the ability to work with wolves and have a wolf, if you want to call it, I, for lack of a better way to put it, but almost imprint on them. Mm -hmm. um, um, has changed these men's and uh, lives um, significantly because it's a presence that there's no judgment. Um, it's it's there's just something about this wolf and this calmness that that it brings, um, and you hear the same story in so many ways that it was just this ability to lay it all out to this animal you know this is this is this is what i've been dealing with this is my demons this is everything and there's something about this animal that that creates this calm and um so it's not just something that you know me as a wolf loving individual has felt and seen it or yourself but people that truly have been traumatized have been completely changed by the presence of wolves and so there it's is like something significant about that. Yeah. It's like they cut through and they go to your core. They yeah. go absolutely to your core. Whether you want it and or not. It, <laughs> whether you want it or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which yeah. to me is, is it's been life-changing for me. And um, I, I think it's, I, I, I wish we could bring that about a little bit more in this world. You know, that ability to yeah. say, if you could just see this, if you could just find yourself to, to pull back this anger and hatred and, and um, ignorance in so many ways, especially when it comes to wolves, it would be, you would, you, this could change your life. And that's always what I've wanted to do is just take people and say, no, come with me. Let me show you what I'm talking about. And then, and then you can judge. But at least, at least feel this and see this and sense this. And I truly believe that if we could get these people out there a little bit more to 
to feel what we've felt in one way or another, I think we could change a lot of minds and a lot of lives, and, and um, we wouldn't be fighting the fight that we fight, you know. So, and that comes to you because you've been doing this. I mean, you've been in so many positions. So, y you 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 end up with Defenders of Wildlife in what the ninety nine two thousand nine nineteen ninety nine. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was because of the Wolf reintroduction. So Bob Ferris, who was uh -huh. um, at Defenders, good man. Um, I love Bob. Roger Schlickheisen was there. And so um, Bob and I met on the reintroduction team. I was, you know, up there busy buying things like heaters to keep us all from freezing to death and food and, you know, all the paying for the helicopters with that magic American Express card that had all those donations backing. the. It was just a wonderful time. We got out the yellow pages. You're like, what do we need? You know, what do we need? We, we all make do this that. Work? That'd be great, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the, uh, like the dart, it was so cold. The darts were freezing in the air and bouncing off the wolves. So like, okay, this is a problem we can solve. So we got in there, we bought up every, you know, hand warmer in the local vicinity and just packed them, the, the cases with, uh, with hand warmers and the, 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 uh, folks would take those out and, and stick them, you know, wrap them around the darts and stuff. And then, um, and then right before they would um, shoot, they would take them out and then put them in, the dark end, and and then uh, they wouldn't freeze in that air. But it was literally—I mean, it got down to fifty below zero. It was crazy, crazy, crazy it's cold. A cold you just um, don't feel. <laughs> it just freezes you, you up so it fast. Is, it is. It is incredible cold. And so anyway, so Bob and I got to spend a lot of time getting to know each other, and you know, the whole crew did. We had such a great team that year, and and then uh, he called me. Um, when we, uh, I think he was looking at our track wolf program. He called me a couple, I don't know, months later and just said, you know, this, we were doing this track wolf program with the kids where if they had decorated the collars for the wolves, that they knew we were getting weekly updates on where the wolves are and what was happening. And he called me to complain. He goes, you know, we had this idea and, uh, and we just didn't get there fast enough. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you know, like, um, and I just kind of teasingly said, you know, if you'd hired me, you'd have had the, the whole program and, and, <laughs> and you just, just should have hired me. And then he called me back a few weeks, a few months later and he goes, you know, that has been bouncing around in my head for such a long time. Um, I want you to meet Roger. And so I, I went to Seattle and met Roger and just, you know, it, it was, it was the place to be working if you wanted to work for wolves because Roger had such a strong heart for wolves and, and of course Bob did and all of the people that were working at the time that was you know, that was the flagship species and so they were the only ones also to respond when there was earlier a few years before then the wolf reintroduction almost didn't happen at all I mean we had a a, a situation where um, you know they were Congress was getting ready to pull all of the Yellowstone support for the Yellowstone wolf reintroduction. Um, it took going back to DC with uh, Michael Blake, who was the author of Dances with Wolves. Mm. Um, and gosh, that's a whole other story. I don't know if you have time, but maybe we, we got save time. it for another we can, one. Hey, I like you just okay. said it. You just said it though. <laughs> you just said it. Yeah. So the dances, you've got me now. So what the Dances with Wolves story, I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm, I'm typing this stuff out because 
Okay. You've already, you've just yeah. said there will be another one. So I like that. I'm yeah, that's a, that's an incredible story. And it is, you know, it, it almost didn't, yeah, the wolf reintroduction almost was not secure with the 95, 96 reintroduction with the 96 one being pulled from funding, mm-hmm. but it didn't even, it wasn't even going to get that far because of what was happening in Congress uh, a few years before then. And it, uh, Michael Blake, the author of Dances with Wolves, turned all of that around. And really, no one knows much about his story. So I'd be happy to share that with you. We are Let's going to, uh, we are going, I'm making this happen. So, okay. all right, I've got that down. So let's move forward. Just know there's going to be a part two or yeah. seven or whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on. So yeah. you, you've got your, okay, so you get hired. Yeah. And you know what? I get I, hired. I'm going to screw up Robert's last name. Uh, how do you even say, I don't even remember it. How do you say his last name? Not Robert. I'm sorry. Um, Roger. Roger. Thank you. Like Thank you. Like I can't do it. Yes, yes. <laughs> he, he, Rogers, ran, he was the boy in charge yeah. of uh, uh, Defenders at the time. He was, and he just—he was just a fantastic person and great person to work for, great boss, um, and just absolutely dedicated to Wolves. And so, yeah, so I came in. I was hired to do Wolves in Idaho and in Colorado, believe it or not. So that was 20-some-odd years ago, 21 years ago. And so I was one of the first people on the ground working in Colorado to start beating the drum. You know, we want wolves back in Colorado. And uh, that um, Bob Edwards was working at that point um, through a group called Sanapu. Um, and, you know, there were Mission Wolf. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Kent Weber and, and Tracy Brooks were working. Um, you know, so just planting seeds at that time of we really want to, you know, see wolves back in our lifetime. Um, so it's so exciting now to see that this is going to happen in the next few years. We're going to see wolves back on the ground. It's going to be amazing. In Colorado. I'm yeah. pretty sick. I'm pretty I hope. It's going to be great. Yeah. I just, I just really hope for Colorado. There's so much opportunity right now to learn from the mistakes that were made in other states and to avoid those same mistakes. And I think that's going to be the biggest thing is just ensuring that, you know, we take those lessons that we learned in other areas and avoid making those same problems because it keeps setting states back. You know, Oregon's gone through that. Washington's definitely gone through that. Yeah, continuing. Um, California to some extent. Yeah. And so. I'm hopeful for Colorado. I think we're, um, well, I'm knocking on wood, but I think that we've, we've, we're progressive enough. We've got, I think we've got the right people in the right places to listen. And that's where, you know, I'm working right now, really trying to put it out there and get to know, um, you know, commissioners and people like that, because I think it's really important to get information to them before um, the spoils of, of uh, hatred and, 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 you know, the, the, the false conflict and the false there's no you know there's no need to to um embellish or lie or fabricate um i I just call it's based out of ignorance and so for me it's all about facts truth whether it's an ugly truth or 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 a good truth you know i think it's important that we need to get out there and and you've done a lot of that work you know you've done a lot of roundtable work you've done a lot of stuff where you sat down with 
with um, the powers that be and and you know h- how did that and I, I how did that come about how did you decide that I mean I know you I'm kind of skipping a little bit maybe I should back up but uh, you know you start working with defenders you've got your own gig um, you start working with the um, uh, you o- did you oversee the wolf compensation was that something you came up with was that something yeah. that Okay, let I want to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, so yeah, by year two or three, I uh, was at Defenders. Um, I ended up taking over the um, wolf compensation program for the Northern Rockies, and I oversaw payments of one point two million dollars uh, for reimbursements for livestock losses to wolves. Mm-hmm. So more so than anywhere else in the country. And what I um, I used it as a learning opportunity. So I wasn't happy with just like writing a check out to yeah. um, a rancher. I wanted to see what does the depredation claims say? You know, what was the investigation report? Who did the reporting? Let's see, you know, what, what caused the, um, the loss. Um, and you know, what, what, what were the triggers, you know, trying to pay attention to what were the triggers. So I would reach out to the managers and talk to them about, you know, what, what happened. And just to get that better understanding of, you well, know, wolves were in the area for several years, but this year we brought in, I remember one was a, um, a, a load of weak calves that had come in off of rodeo uh, where the calves were really sick and a lot of them had died on their own. And so um, wolves came in and, and started killing them. And that's, you know, that's, that's wolf nature. You know, that's their job is yeah. to clean up the dead, the dying, the, the sick, the injured. And so it clearly triggered that response in, in the wolves um, to have these, um, these cattle in their area that were so ill. Um, and, of course, there would be carcasses. We see that over and over again where people, the carcass pits would be filled with, you know, really old, nasty Cows and sheep that had died, and um, but that smell. I mean, wolves live their life through smell, right? That's mm-hmm. their biggest um, power, superpower, <laughs> is that they have the ability to um, to smell at times far greater than than humans can, and certainly than most dogs. Um, but they could smell from miles away, and they're scavengers, right, as well as predators. So a free meal means you don't get your teeth kicked in by a moose or a healthy elk or something like that. Opportunistic. So saves lives. They're absolutely, yeah. So, but, you know, if you're looking at it through the wolves' eyes, we were inviting them to these ranch lands, right. right, because you have these dying animals or you have these big carcass pets and all the scavenging opportunity. So it was just like watching this, over and over and over again where there was something like that that would trigger the attack on the livestock and and just it became a, you know a theme that you could see and anticipate that this was going to happen so that's where the non-lethal coexistence measures really came into play is just recognizing that while working with the livestock industry and while working with people like Carter Niemeyer mm-hmm. um, who was with wildlife services early on and then later with the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and Rick Williamson that, you know, they were, we were all seeing this, that um, there was factors in place that would make the livestock particularly vulnerable. And it was usually about a lack of animal husbandry um, that would um, entice wolves to the areas where the 
you know, where the wolves uh, would pick up on the vulnerability of the livestock, and that would trigger trigger their response uh, to uh, to call those animals. So yeah, that's where it started, and that was gosh, twenty some odd years ago. So um, I I always wondered and, uh, about the so I have. Hmm. And I've talked to Doug, I've talked to Carter a little bit about it, because, you know, I'm, I've, I've got this issue a little bit with um, compensation. Um, and and I, I don't have a problem compensating for um, uh, uh, livestock that has been killed by these animals legitimately, and we're using measures to keep them. You know what I mean? I, I think that it's a two-part story. Yes. And yes. so... Um, I was at, uh, you were at the same conference, uh, um, it was um, back in D.C. about uh, five years ago or so with, um, oh God, my brain just lost me. But anyway, it was a conference in D.C. and um, there was a lot of European um, uh, biologists and stuff here and they were talking about um, a con- uh, I uh, remember. Do you remember? Uh, why yeah, is my brain humane, losing me? Humane Society. It's that's okay. Right. Humane Society, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. where Cecil had just pa- uh, been killed and all these things. And that was such an amazing con- a conference. I learned so much. Um, but yeah. I, I, I think that I can't remember the gentleman's name, and, and I, I, I have all the information elsewhere. But he got up and he was talking about, um, you know, as far as what they were doing over there, and they were trying to do co- uh, compensation programs for good behavior. So in other words, if you learn to live with wildlife, wolves, you are compensated for such. And I thought, what a, what a concept. What a way to teach. What a way to learn how to live and coexist is to say, instead of wanting to kill everything and get paid for it, um, why not learn to coexist and, and use these lon- non-lethal measures? And I, I, I get a lot of pushback with that saying that it really wouldn't work. And I'm like, I don't see why it wouldn't. And I've heard that from, um, well, certain people from Wildlife Services. that are like, no, no, that won't work. And I thought, it's because you won't put it out there. What are your thoughts on that? Because I really wanted to talk to you about that. Oh, um, boy, you know. I, is that left so field for me? I mean, am I, am I yeah. wrong to think this way? Or, you know? Well, no. I mean, that's, that's why I focus, I mean, my focus is entirely on the non-lethal coexistence strategies, and I think that those are the most effective ways that we can help wolves and other wildlife. That you know, we've come through generations of people now that, in their relationship with wildlife, if the wildlife is a threat or a or considered a threat, or um, there's a conflict, there's a problem. Usually the wildlife gets killed. Yeah. And, that, and we can't afford that anymore. I mean, we are seeing wildlife population species decline all over the world at the most rapid pace in human history. Mm. So these old measures don't work for, for maintaining a healthy, um, sustainable environment worldwide. We have to have other options. And, these, and, and it makes sense because the non-lethal is actually more effective at reducing the problems than our old archaic lethal control measures were ever. You would know. Um, You you know, you you founded Wood River uh, Wolf Project in Idaho, and you've proven that since 2008, you know? Yeah, so we're going into year 14 this year. That's awesome. Um, 
because that was yeah. supposed and to just we... kind of be a didn't I, you're gonna have a really to me the Wood River project is one of the most amazing things and I wish that it could be duplicated over and over and over you know what I mean um throughout the west and I'm really bummed that it really hasn't um yeah it's it it is in certain areas and it definitely is with ranchers on an individual basis right often you just don't hear about them and you don't hear about them because they're not a conflict you know so conflict tends to drive the news and so if there's not a conflict happening then uh then you don't hear about it and a lot of ranchers will not advertise that they're doing the non-lethal part of it's peer pressure they don't want to get under the scrutiny of other people who don't understand their neighbors Um, they don't want to they don't want to trigger that that's a problem yep and there's a lot of ranchers actually using these tools i've worked with them um and my deal is you know i don't i don't tell people about the work that i'm doing with these folks because we we don't need the publicity they're they're testing this stuff out there on the ground they're finding it works i just want to make sure that wolves live and and that's the whole goal behind this is just ensuring that that we have the best opportunities for wolves to survive. And if that means, um, you know, going under the radar <laughs> and working uh, to ensure that ranchers have the best tools to coexist with wolves. And, and that's, you know, what I did for years. So, so with, um, the, with the with yeah. with with the Wood River Project, I mean, that was a big thing because it was um, with sheep and in the area that you were at. They were losing sheep quite a bit, right? I mean, you 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 co-founded this with um, Mike from Lava Lake um, and Rick yep. Rick, right? Uh, Williamson, yes, from Wildlife Services. Yeah, and you know the area that you guys were that you you did this in. Um, what was the depredation? You know, with with sheep, it was pretty significant, right? Well, it was significant. Um, in the areas where wolves had shown up the years before. So we started the project just the same year that wolves showed up into our project area, which was 2007. It was um, a huge train wreck. You know, we had several thousand sheep that were dumped into, uh, you know, without really even regard to what might else be out there. And so the rancher didn't do it on purpose. It was just we're going to unload the sheep here. We're moving them out onto the public land. And there was no communication to let him know that there was a, a new pack of wolves there that had was the first ones to reestablish in this entire um, area in the Wood River Valley over in Idaho. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, within 24 hours, we had um, a dead livestock guardian dog because the wolves were defending their pups. And livestock guardian dogs that time of year near a wolf den are considered a threat, just like any other strange canine would be. Uh, they just look at them as being strange wolves that are coming to attack their pups, and they were really defensive. And, of course, they killed sheep, and it was just this mess. So uh, normally when that happens, the wolves would then be killed, but the local community came out and said, wait a minute, you know, we were getting used to watching these wolves. They were the Phantom Hill pack. Mm-hmm. You know, people were gonna, able to stand on the highway like they do, over in Yellowstone with their scopes and watch these wolves caring for their pups. And just, you know, they had a lot of people out there that were like, wait a minute, we want them here. Why would you kill them? You know, it just doesn't make sense. So um, I worked with Mike Stevens from Lava Lake and Rick Williamson, and we set up a um, turbo flattery uh, test, you know, putting the sheep at night behind the slagging material. 
Um, and for the rest of the summer, we didn't have a single other incident. So we got together with the ranchers in the in the fall. This is a it's a big project area. There's like 20, 25,000 sheep that go through this area. It's one of the um, heaviest grazed um, sheep production areas in the Western United States. It's also one of the most rugged and the most remote. Right. So you know, it was the worst case scenario. Um, but we got together with the uh, the ranchers and the agencies in the fall, and, and we went, "Look, you know, you can you can do this. See, these tools work." And they went, "You got lucky. <laughs> we don't think it's going to happen in year two. So this I took the bait, and yeah, this was a fluke. And I took the bait and went, "Okay, what if we do this as a three-year demonstration project?" And they went, "Well, yeah, okay, let's do that." So I think everybody you know, on that side of the table thought it was going to fail. Here we are going into year 14 and we still had the lowest loss rate of sheep in wolf country in the state of Idaho. Now in anywhere where wolves are present in the West. So it's, you know, it's, um, we're showing people that these methods do work. They're sustainable. Um, and they're actually cheaper to use over the long term than relying on helicopters and gutters and all that to go in and kill wolves. So it's been incredibly successful. I mean, obviously, 14 years in, <laughs> you know, it's it's got to be doing something right to, to continue for as long. And um, so it's it's range riders. Do you use range riders and Fladry? No. And what else do you, what all are you using? Yeah, so we, we will, of course, with um, sheep, we have herders. And so each band might be 1,500, 2,000 sheep in a band. And with that band, there'll be um, one or two herders that go with them. But we use the whole gamut of things. So livestock guardian dogs, we increase the number of dogs per band. We worked with the ranchers uh, and the herders to um, make them aware that if you bring those dogs near wolf dens in the springtime, there's going to be, um, you know, that, that then the wolves become um, really defensive and the dogs become an attractant and that is going to create a conflict. So avoid the, the denning sites. So we work on trying to ensure we know where the den sites are, um, to help them graze around them mm-hmm. and then increase the protection for the dogs. So we have, um, you know, a number of dogs that are out there and then making sure that they have the extra protection at time. And that can be things like fox lights. Um, we haven't used flattery in years because we just have so many other things that work so well, but um, we provide like lighting, the hyping flashlights, um, there's uh, uh, sirens, uh, like the air horns and uh-huh. stuff, um, you know, all kinds of different types of tools to just let wolves know that people are there, they're paying attention, these sheep are not unguarded. And that's really all wolves need, you know, that they they don't like putting themselves in a risky situation. Right. They've learned, you know, that humans are the most dangerous creature on the planet. Um, and to avoid them when possible. And so as long as they know there are people that are nearby, then they typically don't bother the sheep. Uh, and we had our worst year this year that we've had um, ever, I think. We had 20 sheep out of the 20-some-odd thousand that were out there that were killed by wolves this year. Oh, wow. And in both cases, both cases, it was new herders coming in that had not been trained and did not believe and using the tools that we gave them. They do now, but, you know, at the time they were really skeptical and we couldn't convince them otherwise. And so when they then come back and realize that none of the other herders are having these problems, um, these tools, you know, we, they do work, give them a try. Um, 
you know, it takes convincing everybody. And so it's, you know, it's an ongoing struggle in that way. But our average loss for 14 years is five sheep a year. That's pretty uh, amazing with the amount of sheep that are on the landscape there, right? And as rugged as the territory is, yeah, it's incredible. It's a very difficult place. I mean, they were they were losing hundreds of sheep in those with those same bands to coyotes, and a lot of our tools are are just as effective with coyotes, um, or close to anyway. I think coyotes might be a little bit smarter than wolves. They're certainly more stubborn about <laughs> well, you just, know being. They're cocky. You know, it's almost They're like it's cocky. a challenge. <laughs> yeah. It's like they kind of. I mean, I've dealt with so many coyotes, and I'm like, you're just egging me on buddy you know i mean they're so funny in that ass i mean they're just cocky and it it whereas wolves are like hey listen no (laughs) i don't need this you know it's in the kernel of their brain they've been persecuted for so many centuries you know it's just kind of insane but when it comes to dealing with um and working with, because I, I, I don't like, I want to retract that because I don't like the word dealing. But when you're trying to work with ranchers who are skeptical um, and you've done this well, and like you said, you've done it under the radar, which I find um, incredibly respectful. Because I do think that once we start to um, shine a light on things, it also becomes very political with wolves. It's a wolf thing. There's something about wolves yep. that, that becomes so political. And, but... When it oh. when it comes to that, how do you get them to the table to talk? How do you get them to utilize? I mean, is it something that's just a matter of great communication? I mean, you got a very calming voice, so that's helpful. Whereas I'm right in your face, so <laughs> you know, <laughs> very different approach. But I think that it's really important to have people that have that ability to talk to them because right now, uh, you know, it, it it's a very Big mentor of mine has always said, a slice at a time, Kim. Don't expect the whole loaf. You're going to you'll lose it all. But I think that it's slowly changing in, in certain areas, Montana, even Idaho. Idaho, you're, you've been changing it, so that's awesome. But I think that's my concern here, like in Colorado, where we've got the reintroduction um, you know, going to happen. Um, and we still, you know, that... that um, the folklore, the the stuff from Idaho and, and from Wyoming and Montana is filtering down into Colorado to um, the ranchers down here. And they're like, we don't need it. The vermin, they're, you know, they'll, they'll kill everything. And, and so it's automatic fear. And they don't want to talk to anybody. Um, you know, they've had the roundtables coming through Colorado. And, you yeah. know, some of the folks on that table have said, it's just, it's... It gets to a point where all they wanted, they're showing up just to be, just to attack. They don't want to learn. They want to attack. How do you get through that? Or do you just hopefully get one out of the 20 that's willing to work with you? I I think, yeah, honestly, that um, Colorado could have avoided doing some of the same stuff. And this is, this is what I mean by making the same mistakes that other states did the approach has not been the right one and it it is yeah it it cannot it it has not been an effective approach it it has to be more interpersonal it has to be more trust building and um and it has to be more transparent Um, because the ranchers aren't fooled at all by you know come to this meeting and we're going to solve all your problems um they're going to listen to each other yeah. Because their sense of identity, their their 
trust in identity is stronger than their trust in science or in your science anyway. So, you know, it's, they don't trust strangers um, and they don't trust people outside of their, of their, um, their group. And, and that's served them well for a very long time. It actually works against them in some cases. Uh, and that's the part that, you know, if I get an opportunity to get to know a rancher well enough, that's what I focus on is like, how do we make this work for you? You know, what is your goal? If your goal is just to kill wolves, like some of the people here in Idaho, they don't really, you know, their goal is uh, killing wolves is more important to them than saving livestock. And, and it's just, that is the truth. It is more important to them to get that rush of killing wolves and getting that anger and, and nurturing that um, hatred toward the species than it is to protect livestock. I was told that, yeah, I was told that by um, uh, a specific individual at work for Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks um, uh, over in the, uh, this is a few years back, um, <clears throat> but over in the big hole area. And oh, we yeah. spent hours on the phone, and I said, Why are you not teaching them that their bone piles are an attractant? And they said, He said, Listen, they don't care. Yeah. They care less about the dead cattle than they do about how many wolves we kill. The bottom line is, if the bag is full of dead wolves and they still have a, you know, <laughs> uh, they still have dead dead cattle on the ground, if I call up and say, well, we killed the pack, they're going to, yeah, good job, good job. And it's not about moving that, that their dead pile, you know, their bone piles away from, you know, their cattle. That would create, you know, that would change the landscape like you said you know so perfectly it's 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 basically a dinner bell it's saying hey thank you and then well what are you doing over there you're still walking but you're slow i can handle this i mean it's frightening um but trying to get trying to get uh, um, that education out there and and that was my biggest complaint when i came back to colorado was that um you know, fighting for wolves, uh, as we have in Montana, I said, this is, this is going about this wrong. We, there, there should have been a lot more outreach prior to this. And I had some people say, that's not my problem. And I said, wow, so it's going to be everybody else's now. So that's where we're at. You know, we need to reach Mm -hmm. out to these people now and really try to form relationships. And I think that you've done it so well, (laughs) you know, that it's like, who, who better to grab the advice from, you know? I've got certain people out there that have done this, you know, Carter, Dan, uh, um, you know, obviously Doug has done his and you, I mean, there's, there's just a few that have done it for so many years that it's just, it's just natural for you to do it. You know, so to me, kudos. I generally like, like the people that I work with. I mean, I, I've got really good friendships within the ranching community and, you know, part of this, like, you know, I've kind of served uh, on the, bridge between the environmental community and the ranching community and there's good people on both sides Absolutely. and there's awful people on both sides Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. i've had more death threats from the from from the um the pro animal um community yeah. than i ever have from from the uh, if you want to call it pro and anti I, i've never i thought oh my god people want to hurt me and you're supposed to be on my side <laughs> well, i'm not i'm not far enough you know I, you can't be uh yeah. You can't be in the middle of the ground and, and not get beat up. 
for sure. Yeah, and in, you know, it, if you, we, I guess we can take an example of what's going on politically right now. I mean, what they have done to wolves over the last what, two or three decades. I mean, we're seeing that same kind of belligerence and hatred with just mass. Oh my you know? God! Yeah. I mean, we're talking about just mass. They've become so politicized yeah. that it's like a badge of honor to not wear a mask. Yeah. Well doesn't matter that you're putting your family in jeopardy and your grandmother and you know all of this other stuff that you know the virus doesn't care whether you believe in it or not but that you're going to politicize that and make that the sword that you're going to fall on it's like it's the same kind of convolution of you know identity versus um i don't know just this rigid I'm going to make the world the way I the way I want it to be, and I refuse to look beyond um, what I think is right. You know that that is that doesn't serve anyone, and it, it certainly um, is so deeply embedded in our system right now. And it's just you know, it, but it's the same type of energy that was directed at wolves that we're seeing directed toward you know just even wearing masks right now. It's, it's difficult and it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to um, deal with and so I, I get that. Um, there's so many things I want to talk to you about and I I want to be able to do I I, I want to I definitely want to talk to you again. We have too many stories that I want to go with, but I do want to kind of um, end with the fact that you've you've come so far that you've actually uh, you have a new thing going on here. I mean, yeah. the, the, <laughs> yeah. what, what is this? The International Wildlife Coexistence uh, Network? What What is this? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, so this thing has been bothering me for years now. I, I started working probably five, ten years ago more internationally. So as I was learning these skills and tools and methods to do with wolves here in the West, uh, people were asking, well, do they work with wolves in other areas? Can they work with dingo? Can we... Can we take some of these, you know, community models and apply them to other species? And so, um, you know, I started working all over the world and uh, being able to take some of the things that we learned from from this project and apply it in so many other areas. But it was also heartbreaking because there were so many people that wanted to change things on the ground for um, the animals in their community, but didn't have the tools or the resources or didn't know how to go beyond, you know, just the first early stages. And there was nothing out there between the practitioners that were trying these things all over. I mean, they were bubbling up like little, you know, a friend that's working on snow leopards in, in Nepal and, you know, someone else that's doing dingo in Australia and someone else is doing African lions. And they were just kind of like we did, you know, learning by the seat of our pants, just trial and error. Um, and you're pioneering things because this hasn't been done before. And there was nothing to connect all of those people or, or to give them a support base or to provide resources for them. And I just finally just went, you know what? We have to do this. The only way that we're going to change the paradigm of our relationship with wildlife is if we embrace this you know, from the local level to the regional, to the national, to the international levels. And we can't afford anymore these old archaic systems that allow people to continue just killing off species. And we're losing 
so many, so many just amazing animals. And it's unnecessary. It's only because we don't have the resources or the understanding of how to do them differently. So I wanted to empower these people and and help build that support within their communities. And I went out to so many other organizations and just went, what do you guys think? This would be great. This is a huge gap out there. Could you, you know, could you think of, would you be interested in helping, you know, by taking this program on? They all went, yeah, it's a great idea, but we don't have the capacity to do it. And I finally had one of my friends in Australia who said, you know what, enough whining about this. I think she actually used the word whinging. Um, you know, a good Aussie word. Get the yeah, yeah right. Lay, there's a napkin. Design it right here. You know, we were at dinner at Chico Hot Springs in Montana. She's like, design it right here. And so I just, I mean, I just started scribbling. You know, what the, what does this look like? And then that those scribbles eventually made their way to a six by ten whiteboard that I had to go get <laughs> to to lay it all out. You know, just because I'd wake up in the middle of the night and just see other parts and pieces of it. And so for the last year, I've been working with like-minded people um, to create this new organization, and we give birth to it on Saturday, Um, and everyone's welcome. Um, And uh, we just heard today that Jane Goodall is going to join us with a a support uh, message for us, and we're just getting just tons and tons of such positive reinforcement and feedback, and, and everyone that I've asked to be involved has said yes every single person so how can people so, get in how, how how can people join you on saturday how can we all join you on saturday? well yeah so there's um we're doing a, a webinar to do the the launch on saturday so um they can email me if they want to it's suzanne at wildlifecoexistence.org and i'm happy to send them the link on how to join us Okay. Uh, we are launching the website that day, so it will go live on Saturday. We have a, a new video that um, this amazing um, singer, uh, Priya Darshini, who um, is up for a Grammy and, um, this year. She has a classical Indian background, and oh, she's just this amazing singer. And so she's going to be uh, participating and, and doing music for us on the launch. And she's also the narrator for our new video. So all of that comes out on Saturday and it's just, you know, we're building a movement and, uh, and it asks people to take a pledge of, you know, how they can create coexistence in their own communities. Um, and we're providing a ton of resources for them to act locally. Um, and then we've created the largest database of coexistence research in the world. Uh, so that's going to be open to people to, to use as a database for, you know, governments that are looking for policies. Plus, we have this incredible network of over, I think we're at hundreds now, of experts who have offered to volunteer their time to um, help with projects. Like I was on a call this morning with researchers in, in uh, Israel uh, that are working in the Golan Heights to help protect wolves uh, and restore them there. Wolves are only surviving on the landscape because they are living in minefields Uh, it's the only place that's safe from humans so take that in mind i mean it's like minefields are safer than people isn't that crazy scary thought but factual right yeah wow yeah but factual but we're helping there and we're i mean we're 
we're helping all over. One of the projects we're working on is uh, working, um, it's called the Lion Guardian Program, and it's working with the Maasai people in Africa. Um, and where traditionally the warriors would have um, taken their status within the tribe for how many lions that they killed, they are now taking their status for how many lions they save, That's that they protect. Amazing. Well, I can't wait yeah. to be able to highlight this more. So I want to. It's going to be fun. I'm stoked because this is really exciting. So um, I'm going to make sure that I join you um, on Saturday. Thank you. And we will put some stuff out there as well because I think it's really important to highlight um, everything that's good. And you've done a lot of good and you've helped a lot. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all the work you've done. Okay. And yeah. we truly, I, we are doing this again. And we've got a lot to highlight. So we still have stories from the past. And we've got oh some gosh, new yeah. great upcoming stories that are going to be happening. So you, you're you promising me, right? We're going to do this. I am promising. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, people can also visit our Facebook page. The International Wildlife Coexistence Network is online. And you can register for the for the uh, event, the Fantastic. launch on Saturday. And become part of the founding circle. So We will make sure that that gets out as well on uh, on our Wolves of the Rockies uh, um, Facebook page and my own. And um, um, just so that everybody's in that community as well. And then this podcast is uh, going to pop out there before the weekend. So um, hopefully we've got some folks that are going to be um, taking part as well. So, Suzanne, thanks for hanging with me tonight. I appreciate it, and I'm so excited to be doing this again with you. So yes. thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, and back at you, all the great work that you've done and continue to do. I'm so happy that you guys are where you are and able to do the work that you're doing because it is all about the, doing it for the critters. Um, so it's deeply appreciated. Thanks. Hey, y'all. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Suzanne and myself as much as I did. The stories and the conversation were truly heartfelt, and I love that. So until we can do this again with Suzanne, and I know we will, please drop me a line at kim at org. Just let me know how we're doing. And if there's anything you want to talk about or hear about, let me know. And we'll see what we can do to get that to you. So until then, y'all stay wild. Wolves of the Rockies and all things Wolf and Wild would like to thank our sponsors, SKB Cases and NRS Rafts. We appreciate everything that they do. The equipment they have is all top of the line and the best stuff. Wouldn't trust my equipment or myself down a river without them. <laughs> 